This is the Nordic Asia podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Kenneth Bonilson. I am an anthropologist based in Oslo and also the coordinator of the Norwegian Network for Asian Studies. I'm here today with Dr. Stig Toften-Massen, who is also an anthropologist and a sociologist and has been affiliated with NIAS, the Nordic Institute for Asian Studies, in various capacities for many, many years now. Stig Toften-Massen has worked in India since he first traveled there to study nearly 50 years ago. Among many other things, he has worked on farmers and farmers' movements in North India. And he joins us today for a conversation on the ongoing farmers' movements and protests in India, where tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of farmers from different parts of the country have been protesting in and around the national capital, Delhi, since November. So what is the immediate cause of such a large number of farmers demonstrating and protesting for such a long time in and around Delhi? Well, in September, Parliament in New Delhi passed three bills. The protesting farmers demand that all three should be repealed. The bills, they deal with crops, with the marketplaces, with people who can enter agriculture and who can enter the markets, and with contracts and dispute settlements. Basically, the bills aim to deregulate Indian agriculture to make it more efficient. Let me mention these three bills in some details. One is called the Farmers Produce Trade and Commerce Promotion and Facilitation Bill. Now, this bill increases the freedom of choice of farmers and traders to buy and sell outside the existing state-regulated marketplaces. They are called Mondays. The government says that such marketplaces will continue to exist, but the bill aims to move more trade outside the marketplace. Farmers and traders on these markets want to keep the markets. Presently, maybe two-thirds of the wheat harvest in Punjab and Haryana the states near Delhi, is bought and procured by the Food Corporation of India at these state-controlled markets at a fixed government-assured price. That's the so-called minimum support price, which is fixed by the government, by a commission every year. So these markets are very important for wheat farmers. They fear that if the markets decline in importance, eventually also the minimum support price will disappear. Another bill is called the Farmers Empowerment and Protection Agreement of Price Assurance and Farm Services Bill. As far as I understand, this reform promotes contract farming. It enables farmers to enter into long-term agreement with other farmers or with various businesses, including large agricultural firms, even, I presume, multinationals, to grow quality farm products at agreed prices. The idea is to diversify Indian agriculture and produce more healthy and valuable crops, and also to redirect investment to areas which are presently underdeveloped, for example, to increase production of oilseeds. Here, the farmers are afraid that they will lose control not only over which crops they grow, but that others will eventually take over or grab their land. The third bill is called the Essential Commodities Act. Trade in so-called essential commodities are under strict control to prevent hoarding. The bill removes restrictions on a number of crops so that merchants may buy and legally store large quantities. This is often needed. These days in India, tomatoes may sell at 50 paisa a kilo. 
That's fem øre in Danish for a kilo. Uh, reforms may prevent such gluts in the market. Uh, finally, I should perhaps mention that there's nothing in these bills regarding genetically engineered crops or GMOs. This may come in some future reform, but the ruling party may itself be uh, divided on this particular issue. If we look at the footage we've seen from Delhi and from the surrounding areas, uh, the protesters, they seem well organized. They've set up camps on the outskirts of Delhi with large joint or communal kitchens. And in some of the camps, they ostensibly also have dental clinics, mobile phone charging stations, even libraries in some of these camps. What do we know about the unions and the other different organizations that are involved in these current farmers' protests? They are gathered on the outskirts of Delhi and they are being prevented by the police from entering the center of the city as they have done on many earlier protests. Now, who are they? I don't know all of them, but I do recognize some of them, particularly the BKU, the Bharatiya Kisan Union or the Indian Farmers Union. I know that union from Western Uttar Pradesh in the early 1980s. At that time, Mahendra Singh Tikhait was the leader. Now his two sons, Naresh and Rakesh, are leaders negotiating with the government. I met them when they were boys. The BKU has several units of factions in Punjab, and they are also strongly represented. From South India, there is the Karnataka Rajya Raita Sangha. They always worked rather well with the BKU. There are also groups organized by the communist parties and new groups organized by anti-corruption activists like the political scientist Yogendra Yadav. Others who could have been there but who may not have put in an appearance include Vandana Shiva, the eco-feminist. She would fit into the gathering but she may not have come yet. Now the Shetkari Sangatana from Maharashtra is not participating. It's also a farmers union but being in favor of the free market they approve of the reforms. So, in a sense, the list of who is there is more or less as I would have expected. You mentioned in the beginning that, that these protests are evidently related to the further liberalization of Indian agriculture, uh, both at the point of production itself, but also at the point of uh, sales, price setting and storage, if you like. If we take a longer historical view of things, why are liberalizing reforms in Indian agriculture more or less always so controversial? Well, farming essentially belongs in the private sector. Farmer families, they are like small firms, but they get special protection by the state because they grow food for the nation. They are poor, they are needy, but they are also pampered with subsidies. The sociologist Dipankar Gupta, a well-known sociologist in India, he recently quoted a figure that the agricultural subsidy in India is higher than the agricultural subsidy in the European Union in aggregate terms. Indian farmers may also be exempted from income tax. They pay little for certain inputs like electricity and water. At the same time, they are numerous and hence politically very influential. They can bend the state in their direction. They can also be violent and destructive. In Denmark, the government recently ordered all minks killed because the mink carried coronavirus. The farmers here in Denmark literally cried, but they complied. In India, they would have rioted. So that's the farmers in a nutshell in India.
While these protesters claim the support of farmers from across India, listeners who might have seen footage from Delhi will have noticed a large number of Sikhs among the protesters. By all accounts, the, the majority of those who are protesting either in Delhi or on the outskirts are from the states of Punjab and, and Haryana. Why do we see farmers from these two states in particular being so active in the current protests? Well, the farmers of Haryana and Punjab and I would add Western Uttar Pradesh or Western UP are more active because they have more vested interests than others. The Green Revolution in the 1960s made them a wheat and rice and sugar surplus producing area. Their prosperity in fact goes back to British times. They were among the first to get canal irrigation in the 19th century. The Land Alienation Act from year 1900 guaranteed that land remained among the farming castes, typically the Sikh Jats or various Muslim castes in these areas. Merchants and money-lending castes, who were often Hindus, could not legally buy up land from the farming castes. In a way, the present reforms reverse this system. Spaces opened up for merchants, big and small, to decide what crops are grown and how. In Punjab, land may now be leased out for a period of 30 years to people who are not farmers, that is to various entrepreneurs or firms. One of the purposes of the reforms is to get these farmers around Delhi to move away from rice and wheat. Too much wheat is being produced in India. The rice or paddy cultivation in these areas requires too much water, too much groundwater. Rice and wheat cultivation should be reduced or maybe moved to other parts of India. The farmers around Delhi, they fear this and hence they protest. Among the many different slogans we've heard raised by the farmers, and there have been, been quite a number of different slogans and also demands, as you mentioned uh, earlier, we have heard the refrain, Kisan Mazdur Ekta Sindabad or long live the unity between the farmers and the laborers, or the agricultural laborers, perhaps. What is the significance of a slogan such as this that calls out for unity between farmers and workers? Well, I'm sorry, I have not listened too much carefully to the slogans. This is an old slogan. It will resonate very well with communist leftist groups. Here, I would say it indicates that all farmers, all who toil on the soil are united, whether they are the landowners or the landless farmers or landless peasants. So there's no class antagonism among the farmers. The enemy is the outsider, the moneylender or the, the, the merchant. That's what one could put into it. But I, I haven't studied the slogans. But as you mentioned, this is a well-known slogan that we also know from some of the older farmers' movements and some of the communist movements. Historically, has it been possible to forge this kind of unity between workers and farmers? Or what are the difficulties involved in bringing owner-cultivator farmers in the same political platform as laborers who maybe own no land or have no land to their name? Well, this is what the farmers' movements try to do. They try to unite those who live in the countryside and who are exploited by the city people. They try to unite them to fight for their rights as a collective. But often there are antagonisms among them. I don't know how this will work out. I mean, among the farmers in Punjab and Haryana, they often use agricultural laborers who come from other states by train every harvest season. In a way, these are the people who may in the future 
be better qualified to grow new crops, the laborers rather than the farm owners. Huh? So in a way, I see that some of these laborers get the contract and they become those who become experts in growing new crops. So the old way of being an owner in command of the land and the good links to the state may be slowly fading. So the rift of the Gulf may widen, but this is only a guess. So if we move from the domestic Indian scene and into the international domain, these protests have made, if not headlines, they've at least appeared in the media here and there. Even in Norway, where I'm sitting, there have been a few reports on these farmers' protests. And otherwise, India does not receive all that much coverage in the Scandinavian media. I noticed that the Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, has expressed concerns about the mishandling of some of these protesters by the police. And we've seen members of Parliament in both the UK and Australia also voicing support for the farmers, as indeed have quite a few US American congressmen. And I noticed that even the UN called on the Indian government to allow these protests to continue in a peaceful manner. Why have these protests become such an international affair? And will international pressure, if you like, make any real difference for how the Modi government will deal with the ongoing farmers' movement? Well, the short answer why the protests uh, resonate in Canada and in the UK is that many Sikhs live there. There are about half a million Sikhs in Canada. There may be more Sikhs than Hindus in Canada. At times there are more Sikhs in the Canadian parliament than Sikhs in the Indian parliament. They have sufficient clout to impress upon politicians such as Trudeau to speak in their favor. Trudeau, he may speak about the freedom to protest in India, but he is not free himself. He is dependent on one or the other minority in his own country. In the 1980s, there was a strong secessionist movement among Sikhs in India that was called the Khalistani movement. It was defeated in India violently but it still has strong presence in Canada, even though Sikhs may try to deny this. In the current farmers' movements, the Khalistani elements in Canada and the UK, they play a role. It's a small role because there are many organizations, as I said, also non-Sikh organizations in the farmers' movement. Khalistanis in Canada and the UK, they play up the farmers' movement and they criticize the Sikhs in India if they fail to support the farmers wholeheartedly. This creates fission among the Sikhs in India, and the Indian government mobilizes and criticizes the Canadian government for having given the Khalistanis a sanctuary now for decades after they were defeated in India. So other things are playing into the farmers' mobilization, but not in a very major way. The focus is still on these three agricultural bills rather than on Sikh versus Hindu conflict. Now you return to these three bills in your comment just now, and they are, of course, at the heart of the matter here. I've noticed that critics of these bills, and this is not just coming from the farmers who are protesting, but also from the political opposition in India, will say that these bills were rushed through parliament, if you like, passed without much consultation with relevant stakeholders and with very little parliamentary debate before these bills were put into law. And this is not the first time that we've seen Modi 
govern in this way. I mean, we can go back and think about demonetization a few years back, which was announced uh, out of the blue. We can think about the abrogation of Article 370 of the Constitution that deals with Kashmir. We could also perhaps think about the lockdown in the spring in India, which was announced also just with a few hours notice very late in the evening before coming into effect at midnight. Sometimes these swift policy decisions can come across as somewhat unplanned, if you like, such as demonetization. So this, I think, raises two questions that we could perhaps discuss for a while. First, how well planned is the current agricultural liberalization drive as it has been expressed in these three specific bills? And related to this, perhaps, what does this uh, obvious tendency to bypass parliament in this way and to make major policy decisions without much consultation? What does that tell us about Modi as a prime minister and about democratic governance in India today? Well, I agree with your reading of the situation. I mean, these three bills, they started out as ordinances and they were then rushed through parliament, as you say, in September. What does that show? Well, I would say it shows that the top of the BJP party, or the main party in the governing coalition, when they make a decision at top level, they like to carry it out quickly and they expect their loyal MPs and other coalition supporters to vote it through parliament without too much debate. So in this case, you can say that the content of the reforms, the economic content is liberal. It's a free market step that they are taking. But the way they take this step is not liberal. The political style that they are using is rather autocratic, or some would say it's like an old sultan of pre-British times. They don't spend much time in parliament for deliberations. At the same time, these reforms did not come suddenly. There were discussions for many years about what an agricultural reform should look like. The Congress party, when they were in power several years back, they talked about similar reforms. A few years back, the BJP government made a 14-volume study to prepare for these reforms. Many well-known agricultural scientists, many well-known economists, and even some environmentalists agree that such a reform is needed. Denmark nowadays has a small role to play in the future of Indian agriculture and food production. I would suspect that the Danish input, small as it may be, may actually be more or less in line with what these reforms are sketching. So yes, the government acted quickly, but it acted on stronger grounds than, for example, when they withdrew the high currency notes that you talked about to control the black economy, the demonetization move some years back. That appeared very hasty to me. Here it was done in a hasty manner in September, but the groundwork was laid long before that. We can return to the likely impact on these bills shortly. I wanted to dwell just a little bit longer on some of the things I mentioned just now and which you also took up, demonetization, the Kashmir situation, and the many different kinds of protest movements we've seen over the past year or so. Now with the farmers, but before that it has been students, academics out in protest, civil rights groups protesting against new citizenship laws that were passed 
last around the turn of the year from 2019 to, to 2020, there seems to be a flurry of social movements in India around all kinds of issues. But are there any party political formations around these days that can pick up some of this political energy generated by these movements and channel it into parliamentary politics? Do we have any kind of political party that can play that facilitating role in India just now? In good old days, it was the Congress Party. I'm not going to sit here and lament about the present situation of the Congress Party, but uh, most probably one can agree that it is not fit for fight at present. It cannot pick up easily on these various discontents around the country. The Communist parties, even in West Bengal, are not strong, and neither in the South except perhaps in Kerala. And that doesn't have much say on the national scene. So I would say that for the time being, the, the BJP-led government, they have the possibilities and they are using the possibilities they have by virtue of their very strong dominance in the center. And then they, they write roughshod also to some extent over the states. Power emanates from Delhi to a large extent these days. And they are able to do it. They have alliance parties. They are allied with the Sikh party, the Akali Dals. But what happens in this situation is that the number two minister in the Ministry of Agriculture was a Sikh lady until recently from a strong Sikh political family in Punjab. She could not stomach these reforms, so she withdrew. And some of the alliances which the BJP had succeeded in making, they break when they make these strong steps. So now they are alienating the Akali Dal to some extent. They also broke some alliances with parties that had formed alliances in Kashmir when they made the reforms in Kashmir last year. There were parties, People's Democratic Party in Kashmir, with whom they were actually aligned in state politics and with whom they formed the government in the state. This broke for the time being, but they're strong enough. They still have the power in Delhi, so they do it. And of course, Modi generally is, is known to back down when he has made a policy decision and announced it. If the farmers now are unsuccessful when it comes to having these uh, three bills withdrawn, which is their demand, what will be the consequences for Indian farmers and for Indian agriculture more generally during the years to come? Well, India is a federal republic. Farming is actually a state subject, but the central government exerts increasing power over agriculture. It wants one India, one agriculture market. That's its slogan. The BJP is a nationalist party. Its slogans make sense for the BJP, one market for the whole of the country. Others will argue that the three acts, they erode the power of the federal states that the whole constitution of India's republic is in danger because of the way that the BJP works. Now, if you look at the reforms, I would say that devil may not be in the detail of the text. The devil will be in the implementation of these acts. Once the government open up agriculture for more players, this may work in many different directions. Punjab, Haryana and Western UP, they are economically very strong. They may actually benefit from specialized contract farming. Gujarat is famous for its milk cooperatives. The Gujaratis, they may exploit new profitable avenues through these reforms. But the poor and uneducated farmers in, say, tribal Orissa may be much more vulnerable to outsiders taking over their land through all kinds of clever tricks. Contract farming in high-value crops, it means many things. 
If you have farmers in Afghanistan nowadays, they may cultivate opium for gangsters to sell on the international market. They are also a kind of contract farmers. There are all kinds of contract farmers. Sometimes they are strong, sometimes they are weak. So the picture will become mixed when you see how it will work out. And that will change the agricultural landscape that you see around Delhi. Because nowadays, if you drive around Delhi, and to some extent down into Rajasthan, more or less what you will see is that the same crops are growing on all neighboring fields in huge areas. They will be harvested at the same time. They will all be waiting to send their sugarcane or their wheat to the market at the same time. It's a very homogeneous countryside. If you look at that countryside in decades ahead, it should be more specialized and it should probably use less water because already environmentally this type of farming has high costs and as the climate gets warmer more water is needed and those costs may increase forcing shift in the way cropping is done or farming is done in northwestern india Thank you for joining us for this conversation about the ongoing farmers' protests in India and, and the long-term and short-term consequences. My name is Kenneth Bornilsen. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.